Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. <sighs> Toxicology, astro seismology, magnetism, the dark side, genetically engineered potatoes, planetoid, planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, robots, drones, and augmented reality. But first up, Here's the news. Phantoms, mirrors, rubber hands and virtual reality. Phantom limb pain is an illusion thought to be caused by the firing of nerves from the stump of a severed limb, tricking the brain that the lost limb is still present. Sometimes this just gives someone the illusion that they could still use their missing hand, but other times it can lead to feelings of extreme pain in the non-existent limb. This has been successfully treated with mirror therapy. A mirror is placed so as to make the remaining limb's mirror image appear to be in the same place as the missing limb. Moving the left hand could allow someone to feel that they can uncramp their missing right hand and relieve the pain for many people. Unfortunately, for some people, the cramping pain gets worse when they see the mirror version of their missing hand moving. So another solution is needed. In the rubber hand illusion, you sit with your hand hidden from you in a box, while a rubber hand sits on top or next to it where you would expect to see your real hand, with a cloth covering the fact that it doesn't actually connect to your arm. Someone in front of you gently strokes your hidden real hand simultaneously while stroking the visible rubber hand. As you watch and feel the stroking, the part of your brain that processes how you are embodied is fooled, and you start to feel against reason that the rubber hand is your hand. You know consciously that the rubber hand is not your hand, but if someone surprises you by threatening or even hitting the rubber hand with a hammer, you jump to protect your hand. When I tried it at the Museum of Human Disease at the University of New South Wales, I didn't flinch because I knew what was coming, but the illusion was very convincing. It really felt like the rubber hand was my hand, and I should have been able to move it. Next, Onrek Ersen, a neuroscientist at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, introduced virtual reality headsets and remote cameras. His team found that by giving you an immersive point of view from a distant camera relayed into the little video screens covering your eyes on a virtual reality headset, and combining this with the rubber hand illusion stroking, they can induce all kinds of illusions based on stretching your sense of embodiment. 
put the camera behind your back and after someone pokes your chest with a plastic rod while at the same time poking a similar rod at the camera, you start to feel that you are floating behind your own body. An outer body experience. If they put the camera on a mannequin looking at its own torso and then stroke your arm or belly and that of the mannequin, you start to feel that you're embodied in the mannequin. Replace the life-size dummy with a little Barbie doll and people found that when prodded on the doll's legs, they felt they were being prodded by giant objects. When Urson tested the illusion on himself when a colleague touched his cheek, he says he looked up and felt as if he was back in his childhood looking at his mother. If you go back to the rubber hand, place it next to your real right hand but with a cloth covering the view of which one is really attached to your arm, and then have both the rubber and real hand stroked at the same time, where you can see them, then you start to feel that both the rubber hand and your real hand are yours. Your body sense has added a third hand. If your rubber hand or real hand are threatened with a knife, you respond in exactly the same way, as measured by heart rate, sweat, and by people's reports. This means that people who receive prosthetics in the future are likely to come to feel that they're natural parts of their body. If you substitute the fake right hand for a fake left hand or a fake foot for your fake right hand, then the illusion fails, no matter how much stroking you do. They put a camera on a researcher so that the volunteers saw themselves from outside their body in the virtual reality headset, and then they shook hands and squeezed. The illusion stayed that they were in the researcher's body shaking hands with themselves. The illusion broke if they didn't squeeze each other's hands at the same time. If you make someone feel that they're inside a dummy and then switch the camera view to a second dummy and stroke them, they feel like they've teleported to a new body. You can switch the view and stroking and have someone feel as if they were teleporting many times to different places around the same room. In the latest research, they've explored what happens if you abandon the rubber hand altogether for nothing. You give someone a camera viewpoint in space and you stroke the air in front of the camera while stroking their belly or hand and they start to feel like they have an invisible body. Returning to people who suffer phantom limb pain after amputation, Erson found that five out of six subjects had significant pain reduction when a rubber hand was stroked where they felt the phantom limb was located. So now there's an alternative for people who weren't relieved of their phantom pain from mirror therapy. Sometimes you need to fight real pain with illusory caresses, and it's not always done with mirrors. listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. I went to the Consumer Electronics Business Information Technology Show, CBIT, again this year. As well as the wonderful University of New South Wales SunSwift Solar Racing Car and the Tesla Motors Electric Sedan, was the stand from the University of Newcastle with drones, robots and virtual reality headsets. Tristan Robinson from the University of Newcastle works in the robotics division. 
He graduated from Mechatronic Studies a few years ago and now works on autonomous robots and systems. I began by asking him to describe the gadgets in front of him. I've brought a few of my toys along to show you. In front of you is the Hexcopter, so this is a six-bladed drone. This one we built by the university just to do research and development on autonomous systems, so GPS waypointing, autonomous takeoff and landing, camera, sort of like observation and drone stuff for that. So general control of drone sort of things? That is part of my job, yep. So I work on many autonomous machines. The flying ones, there's ground-based ones, and there's marine ones. All of them sort of share the same heuristics and control theory for them. I've brought the flying ones along here. We have done swarms as well, which uses an indoor motion capture system to be able to tell position and points. This one here uses GPS for positioning. The other ones have laser distance scanners as well as ultrasonic sensors and beacon testing, things like that. So when you say autonomous, just how autonomous are they? It still needs someone to tell it where to go. This particular model will run into a wall if you tell it to. We are working on camera systems to stop that from happening. But when I say autonomous, I mean if you were to give it a path to fly in GPS coordinates, it would probably follow that path and come back and land. And the hives, do they talk to each other, the quadcopters? They do. The, the hexcopters and the drones will talk to each other. We don't have a central processing unit at any one time. There's no one drone that makes all decisions. They talk to each other and they decide what happens and which one takes over. An example would be one's getting low on battery and it needs another one to take its place. It would call up, it would send out the pulse to say I'm low on battery. One would say I'll fix this for you. It'll come over, it'll take over the job. The one low on battery will fly back and it will recharge. So would, well, what are some of the applications? This particular one, We've had a lot of interest from different people. The Hive UAV company, which has got the university to help them make this system, mining guys wanted to look at it, maybe having the mines follow a mine truck or something like that. Agriculture, watching animals in a paddock, fire front control, so the Royal Fire Service would like us to be able to follow fire fronts, have continuous observation of what's happening. Security wants a fence observation, so maybe have the drones follow a fence line continuously so they can always look after that. We, we're kind of finding every day there's a new application we could do. More people are coming out of the woodwork, and even at this conference I've had quite a few people come up to me and say, oh, well, we could use it in this, and it's gone from there. And you also have humanoid robots here. We do, yes. Uh, they're the Darwin robots. They're primarily designed to compete in the RoboCup soccer competitions, I think the university is doing that for almost 10 years now. They've been programmed by the computer science guys. It's all, it's all very fun and it's all our own code to make them walk and to make them run and to make them see the ball. And how's the university going in the cup? We, we did okay in Brazil last year. We have won once or twice, I think back in 2006, 2008. Every year we keep going. This year's China. It's the competition changes every year. So different ball sizes, different grounds, different challenges. And the idea is it's, it's not allowing any one person to tailor something that'll fit everything. It's trying to keep us all on our feet. And every year, our robots get better, and so do other schools. So the robots aren't standard? This, they are standard. You can buy them off the shelf. They're the Darwin unit. I think they're about $20,000 each. I'm not the guy to ask. But as they've had a long life, we've found we need to upgrade bits and pieces of them. So the next thing to go in is going to be a new circuit board, which would be the Contron board. Thankfully, Contron's doing it all for us and we're going to try and share the same base circuitry for all our robots being the flying ones marine and the bipeds 
That'll be the next upgrade. The heads are now 3D printed. We're going to put new webcams in them. Basically, as we go along, we replace the parts that break and we update the parts we can. And when is the next Robot Soccer Cup? It's in July. I can't remember whereabouts in China it is, but it's somewhere in China. If robots are your dream, follow them. I've had so many people come up to me to say today and just say, oh, you need assistant, or I wish I was doing this. I grew up playing with Lego and robots and stuff like that, and I never thought I would actually be paid to do this. So if that's your dream, chase it. And where should people look online for all the, the drones and the robots at the University of Newcastle? If you go onto the website, maybe. If you go to hiveuav.com, that's the company that I'm working for with the standalone drone system. We have a YouTube channel that shows the mechatronic system. So the robots that we have to make to pass our courses and that sort of thing are all on YouTube. If you look up RoboCup, you can also see all the Darwin robots there as well. Well, Tristan Robinson, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you very much. That was Tristan Robinson talking about autonomous robots. Jake Fountain is a PhD candidate at the University of Newcastle, studying computer science. I asked him to explain the virtual reality gear he had set up. I've rigged up uh, an Oculus Rift with uh, OptiTrack motion tracking cameras to provide a, a large-scale painting experience as a demonstration of, of the technology. So you've actually got a whole area here where you've got cameras at every corner of a square. Yeah, so there's 11 cameras. There's roughly three on each tripod. And uh, that looks in and gives you... A, it, it's not a, a large tracking volume. It's about 1.5 by 1.5 metres. That's mainly due to the space restrictions at CBIT. Um, but then it allows you to... allows me to track a headset, which you wear, and then it, that displays an image. And it allows me to track controllers in six degrees of freedom. So you get position and orientation. So you can paint in three dimensions and walk around and see what you've painted. And I just had a go at that, and that is quite amazing, because at first it just looks like you're painting like you would paint, but in the air. And then, as you say, once you realise it's three dimensions, you can just do things that are otherwise impossible. Yeah, yes. Yeah. We've had some interesting things. Somebody actually drew themselves a body. So they drew a, a, drew a person in full scale and then stepped inside the body and gave themselves a body in virtual reality. That was pretty clever. And it's, it's generally a, a lot of fun. Makes me feel unimaginative that I didn't think of that. So how did you get into this as an area of research? So I started in the Newbots Robotics Laboratory. So I'm still part of that laboratory. I'm the team manager. And from there, I, I started getting interested in, in virtual reality. And I bought myself an Oculus Rift DevKit 1. And then the year later, I bought a DevKit 2. And I started developing my own apps for it just uh, where I could. I, I took a computer graphics course and learned how everything works in the pipeline. And the supervisor of the Newbots team asked me to put together a VR demo for CBIT to, to show things off. So is your background engineering? Actually mathematics and physics. So I, started, I did a BMath, B-Science, majoring in physics, and I did a pure math major in uh, mathematics. And then I, in my honours year, my fifth year, I sidestepped into computer science and did some VR research there. So what led to you sidestepping? Because it sounded like you had a different career planned. I, my motto is just to do what I want. So I did maths and physics, just loved that. And then uh, came upon the robot team, the robot soccer team. And uh, I loved that too. So I just thought I'm going to put more effort into this. Learned coding on the side in my spare time. And uh, eventually got into VR through that. So when you're programming for this, 
What sort of software do you use? So uh, OptiTrack is the company that makes the cameras and they have their own native software. That extracts all the data from the cameras and gives you rigid body positions. Then I send that through to Unity through the network and Unity is a game engine, if you haven't heard of it before. Um, and in that I just have a, a basic game set up and some game logic to allow you to, to select paints and uh, paint in 3D. And that's all written in C-sharp, the, the scripting. Just roughly, not, not too many lines of code, like maybe 20. It's, it's a very powerful engine. So, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of code written by Oculus and by OptiTrack and stuff that is just drag and drop. So, If people wanted to try and follow your path a little bit and get into programming virtual reality, yep. where should they start? I would suggest probably picking up some hardware. So if you have a good gaming PC, a DK2 is technically, an Oculus Rift developer kit 2 is technically a developer kit, but if you have a good gaming PC, you're going to have a lot of fun with it anyway. There's a lot of things to try, and then you can also try developing things if you want to get into that too. And at around $500 to get, into the, to get it to Australia, it's not, not a bad deal really. And it's led to a career for me, so it could, could for you too. So at the moment, the Oculus Rift is only in developer versions. At the moment, yes, and they still don't have a release date. There are more headsets com becoming commercially announced, like uh, Valve announced the Vive with HTC, and you've also got the Gear VR made by Oculus, which you can actually go to like the Samsung store and purchase one of those if you want to buy a Note 4 as well. Well, Jake Fountain, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Jake Fountain talking about virtual reality. Where virtual reality shows an imaginary space on a video headset, augmented reality blends the virtual and the real by overlaying virtual objects and information onto your view of the real world. I visited Sydney's Augmented Reality Meetup. There were several talks and a demonstration of an augmented reality headset with video screen goggles, built-in cameras and sensors. Joseph Wang is a software engineer with Meta Company. I began by asking him, what do Meta do? Meta is an augmented reality headset developer, so Right now we're shipping the Meta One augmented reality glasses to our developers to develop their apps on for our future iterations. And uh, we also have a software development platform for app uh, developers to build their apps on. What does the headset do? It's got video and cameras? Yep, yeah, so the, the Meta One headset acts as an augmented reality heads-up display and it consists of the display part and the depth sensing part. So the display is a 960 by 540 stereoscopic display which is also transparent which allows you to see uh, both the augmented content as well as the real world. And the depth camera is uh, mounted on top of the headset which allows you to use your hands for various gestures and to be able to interact with the augmented reality content. And so what sort of augmented reality content will people be interacting with? Yeah, so we've got a number of uh, people already working on apps. Uh, one example would be Simex, which is a startup based out of Stanford. And what they are doing is a medical simulation program where they're trying to replace a $100,000 medical simulation dummy with a sub $1,000 pair of meta glasses. And so in the area of medicine, there's a lot of issues relating to how do we train doctors and nurses to perform specific operations. And one of these cases is trying to teach a nurse how to inject a patient. So by using the $100,000 dummy, they usually have it there for the nurses to be able to pinpoint the exact position where they want to perform the operation on the patient and then have the nurse do the operation there. Whereas we're in the glasses, 
you can replicate the exact same functionality for a much cheaper cost and be able to replicate the whole sort of scenarios that would normally not be possible with a physical dummy. And when will the Meta Glasses be available for consumers? The Meta Glasses are available for pre-order for consumers on our website now. Uh, the next batch, I believe, is shipping somewhere in August. And obviously, we're still working on improvements uh, for future iterations of the glasses. And what sort of price will people have to pay if they're not developers? So right now, for the, the Meta One, the price is uh, $667. US and that's the same price for developers and non-developers. And non-developers can uh, log onto the website once they've purchased the glasses and uh, download the various apps and the development kit from our uh, dev portal. And if you wanted to develop for Meta, what would you be? What sort of software would you be using? So to develop on Meta, all applications right now are being built using uh, Unity. So our SDK is built around uh, Unity, the Unity game engine, and. Uh, the reason we've done this is because Unity is a very sort of simple tool for developers to use in order to develop the applications. There's a nice drag and drop interface and uh, the scripting part is in C Sharp. And yeah, it's very easy for developers to get started with that, simply dragging and dropping some of the meta scripts and prefabs uh, into their project and getting all the augmented functionality working for the applications. And what's next for you at Meta? Uh, for me personally, uh, I'm going to continue working on uh, the SDK, implementing new features with the rest of the SDK team there. And I'll be around Sydney and various other meetups and other augmented reality events uh, representing Meta and giving demos. And how did you get into this? I got into Meta about two years ago when Meta came to my university and were pitching projects at students to collaborate on them with and uh, me and a few friends decided to work with them on an augmented tabletop gaming application and we built that and we built that and then Meta decided that they wanted to have us over as interns so uh, for three months we were developing applications there and during that time we built things like the the sculpting app uh, that won uh, some best of CES awards then after that they decided to keep us on full-time and uh, Right now I'm back in Sydney finishing off my honours degree for computer science and after this semester I'm probably going to be heading back to Meta in California. It's a really great time for augmented reality. It's amazing to see so many innovations and people developing on the AR platform and hopefully in the next few years we'll see some great devices and applications come out and see the whole field of augmented reality move forward. Well, Joseph, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Joseph Wang talking about the Meta Augmented Reality Headset. Layla Allam is a Principal Scientist in Human-Computer Interactions from CSIRO and UTS. I began by asking her about her augmented reality work. It's to do with the using wearable computing, augmented reality and natural user interaction to design uh, innovative digital services and I'm talking about B2B services. And in particular, you had a way for experts to mentor people remotely. That's correct. So this is a technology that allows a specialist anywhere in the world to assist in real time using the hand a, a, a technician that could be in a field, maybe in a mine side or maybe a health worker. Uh, allow them to understand what needs to be done and how uh, the procedure needs to be performed. And so the person remotely can actually see the hands 
of the expert as well as their own environment and their own hands. Correct. So they see the, the workplace that they are in, which could be like a piece of equipment that they need to fix. And then uh, looking up, they have uh, an augmentation with all the visual clues that the expert is sending. And the expert is producing these visual cues with their hands. So it's natural. It's basically the way a tutor or an instructor will be assisting and guiding uh, a person uh, if they were co-located. But now you can do that over a distance. And you gave some examples from the mining industry. Was there a helmet involved? Correct. Uh, so that's the beauty with the mining scenario is that they already they have to wear a helmet. So we put our sensors on the on the helmet, but uh, we could see use for this technology uh, in wider domain uh, like transport. Think about people working in oil and gas rig, and uh, and also assisting and empowering health worker people that might be working in a remote and regional uh, area, busy attending patients where they need to attend them, assisted in real time by a specialist that may be in a regional hospital. You also had some hands-free systems. Uh, correct. The hands-free is very important because most of the tasks that we are focusing on require the hands to be able to perform the task. Hence the use of wearable computing in order to free the hands. So. I believe that there is a really uh, very good uh, sweet spot between the use of wearable computing, augmented reality and gesture. When you combine these three, you can actually do things that will transform the way things are done. And if people want to look for your work online, is there a website? Yes, there is a website and plenty of videos. Just send me an email and I'll point you to it. Or Google me. All right. <laughs> Any final words? Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I really uh, hope that uh, this community of augmented reality in Sydney will pick up and there will be more work done in this space. I think it's something that will be very important for the Australian economy. Well, Leila, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Leila Allam talking about remote mentoring with augmented reality. I'll post a link to her webpage on the Diffusion episode page. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for more information about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.